What it is, RJLA family. I am Angela Birdsong, your conversation piece host on RJLA Morning Wake Up Call at RadioJustice.org. For something new or unusual to talk about for stimulating conversation for you on the bus, train, plane, or simply at the water cooler or in Cubicle Nation. Today, my guest is Tante Cizue Shimaranga, award-winning freelance journalist in Los Angeles and author of No Doubt, The Murders of Oscar Grant, and Reparations Not Yet, A Case for Reparations and Why We Must Wait. She came to journalism through activism, understanding how powerful media can be for destroying or building grassroots revolutionary change. Hashtag words matter. Hashtag something gotta give. Hashtag black lives matter. Welcome to Conversation Peace. Resist, revolt, rejoice, resist more, revolt more, read some more, rejoice a lot more, says Tandi Seizway Shimaranga. Tandi, welcome to Conversation Peace. Thank you for having me, Angela. Do you recognize that quote? Yes, I do. Where do you think I got it from? <laughs> Girl, you're killing me. You got it from my, uh, is my Facebook page. Very good. <laughs> If you guys haven't noticed, Tandi and I, we know each other fairly well. And Tandi is the first person to give me a job in radio back in 2009 on the show, Some of Us Are Brave. Was it 2009? It was 2009. And we actually phone tag and at the end of 2008 and I I have my original application that I filled out with you and you just don't understand how excited I am to have you on my show conversation piece what what you so so why don't you tell us about some of us are brave and what was the the original mission of some of us are brave because I think I'm part of the end result and fruits of that you definitely are and it's taken I think too long for you to have gotten your own show. I was telling you from the beginning, if you remember, you could do this. And you was always like, ah, I can't, no, I can't, no, I can't. Weren't you? I was. Okay, but yeah, so from the beginning. And uh, what we wanted to do with Some of Us Are Brave was give voice to black women's experiences, voice to black women's analysis. Not speak for black women but provide a platform and amplify their voices. Black women, just like other marginalized groups, don't need anyone to speak for them. You know, this whole concept of being a leader in leadership and telling people what to do, leading people what to do, speaking for people. People don't need 
anyone to speak for them. We all have voices. Some of our voices have been shut out. Some of our voices have been ignored. They just need amplification, that's all. And so with Some of Us Are Brave, we sought to do that, to amplify some of the voices of black women that you don't always hear on the radio. I know I didn't hear my voice on the radio, an older black woman who leans towards revolutionary black nationalist politics, womanist-centered or woman-centered, feminist-centered black woman politics that is rooted in the black community. I wasn't hearing that, so I wanted to hear myself on the radio, right? So we had Sister Charlene Muhammad, who is a co-founder, a Muslim woman uh, in the Nation of Islam, um... A sister by the name of, uh, her name now is Iatunde. At the time, it was Latrice Dixon. She was the one who spearheaded getting us all together to create Some of Us Are Are Brave, a queer black woman filmmaker. You know, I'm sure she wasn't hearing her voice on the radio either. So that was the reason why we came together to do it. And and the title, Some of Us Are Brave, comes from the book. Um, It was a book that is a, it's said to be a primer on black women's studies. Uh, but some of us are brave. And the entire um, quote is, all the men are black, all the women are white, but some of us are brave. And it talked about how black women usually get left out of the conversation when you're dealing with race in America. Usually white men, black men, white women, and you don't talk about black women. And yet here we are, the majority of our communities, the backbone of our communities. How is it that we get left out? Right? So those were some of the ideas behind it. What led you to going into radio? It, what, what was the first leg of your journey to radio broadcasting? Well, I had always been interested in media. I was, uh, I was writing. <clears throat> I got my start in uh, what I call guerrilla or grassroots journalism from the students at, at uh, UCLA. The oldest black student newspaper in the country is called NOMO, and they are the ones who put me on, as we say, uh, with writing. <clears throat> and so there was the writing aspect for NOMO and a couple of other community papers. And then when Latrice put out the call for, hey, we need to get a black women's radio show, I said, yeah, why not? Now, where, where is Latrice from? Is she, is she from UCLA also? No, she's from uh, Detroit, Michigan. So your first article was written for NOMO? Uh, let's see, I think... I want to say, yeah, it's been a while, but yeah. Did you always knew that you wanted to be a journalist when, when you were a no. young girl? No, when I was a young girl, I, uh, I wrote and I wanted to do movies, actually. I wanted to be a, a movie director, probably because I was sitting in front of the TV all the time. That may have been something uh, that had to do with it. <laughs> and, of course, I, my, my research on you, I find that you did write for, for a television series. Well, that's most recently, a digital web series called East of La Brea. But that experience has rekindled my love of writing for the screen. So we'll see where it takes us. Now, I know that you weren't a journalist, of course, when you were a little girl. But when you were writing papers in high school, did you find that you had a proclivity or a niche for writing and telling someone's story? Yeah, a knack for writing. Yeah, I did. I started writing when I was about five years old. <clears throat> so I've always had the uh, the natural talent to write. Just needed some some polishing and direction. Now, how many books have you written yourself and contributed to? 
Uh, well, I've actually, I guess, actually wrote one book, The Murders of Oscar Grant. No doubt, The Murders of Oscar Grant. The book on reparations was actually a talk I gave back in 2000, maybe 2001. And I decided to make that an ebook. I did that because so many people were talking about, um, and that's a um, I know I'm not supposed to say um. Um, I've forgotten the brother's name. That's that's not a good sign. The brother who writes for The Atlantic, I always mess his name up. I don't pronounce his name correctly. But his book or his piece in The Atlantic on reparations, um, a lot of people were talking about it and it kind of renewed interest in the subject. Reparations is a subject that it seems to go through spirals in public consciousness, whereas it's always been a part of the consciousness of a certain section or subsection of the black community. So reparations came into the public consciousness again, and I decided that I would put out my ebook because it was something that I was a part of talking about, uh, like I said, maybe 10 years ago, uh, a presentation I gave to an organization called Black Women for Wellness, which deals with health and wellness, particularly from the vantage point of black women in Los Angeles. And I might add Jan Robinson Flint, one of the co-founders, the executive director of Black Women for Wellness, also spent time in Some of Us Are Brave. She had actually been a programmer at KPFK prior to Some of Us Are Brave. Yeah, that was back in 2002 when you spoke to, um, it was a breakfast meeting um, with um, Black Women for Wellness. Um, you found that? I, I, found some, I found so many things on you, Tondi. That sounds scary, but okay. So yeah, 2002, breakfast meeting on what are some of the health claims for reparations? And a sister who was there and enjoyed my talk, every time she would see me, every single time she would see me, when are you going to put that out? When are you going to put that out? When are you going to put that out? And I had actually lost the document somewhere in a, what do you call them, a floppy disk? That's how long it was, on a floppy disk somewhere. I don't even remember how I ended up finding the copy. I think I may have emailed it somewhere. And eventually, a couple of years ago, saw her again. She said, you know what I'm going to ask you, right? I said, you know what? I'm going to find it. I'm going to send it to you. And I'm going to go on and put it out as an e-book. And that's how that happened. And was that person Robbie G. Davis? Yes, Robbie Davis, yes. Right. And Robbie G. Davis, she she states her thankfulness to you for that presentation because she said it was the most persuasive voice she has heard presenting the argument for the right to reparations. And, of course, this is what she wrote in the foreword of your book. I don't know why why you're downplaying it and say it's not a book. Well, I'm okay, fine, Angie. It's a book. It's a book. Okay. It is a book. It's sold on Amazon. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it most definitely is a book. And you do have um, a disclaimer in there saying that this is an unedited um, publishing. And it's, um, it's, it's the transcript of the oral presentation that you gave on that day in, in 2002. But uh, Robbie Davis, she, she continues to say in the foreword, that um, she originally had a disregard for the possibility of reparations. And after hearing your, your persuasive, persuasive voice, that it turned into an absolute and resolute determination to force the U.S. to pay the debt owed to the descendants of black African people held as slaves. And she further writes in the foreword that your book 
that anything less undermines the blood of our ancestors shed in the unjust enrichment of this country. Um, when you, oh, there goes my um. Mm. Is that my first um for the oh, and, and just, bad, right? Bad. And and just and just so you guys will, un, will understand what what we're talking about with the ums and everything. When when I came in and worked um, for Tandi, she had these golden rules for for some of us are brave and she had these packets of what the mission statements were and she told us that no investigation no right to speak no preparation no right to the mic and one of her pet peeves was ums and ums meant that you were not prepared and that that you're trying to think on on your feet and i am very grateful for for this opportunity to to interview you and even more grateful for the opportunity that you gave me to to learn about broadcasting. Now back to to the reparations. You have said there were health claims associated with reparations. I don't even know what that can be. Mm-hmm. Well, when we talk about reparations, we talk about repairing harm. We talk about the fact that something unjust has occurred, how do we make it right? And African black people in the U.S. are saying that we were brought here against our will. We were made to work for nothing. We were violated. We were humiliated. We were traumatized. And something has got to give. Something has got to be done to acknowledge that this was wrong. This was a crime, right? At the end of uh, 1865, when chattel slavery was finally done away with, in some areas of the South, specifically the Sea Islands off of Georgia, black folks said, well, you know what, just give us some land and we'll be all right. Some land was given to black people so that they could farm on their own, they could fish on their own, they could provide for themselves. That land was also taken away and returned to slave masters who had, you know, enslaved our people, traumatized our people, etc. So we were basically left with nothing. How do you uproot a people, brutalize them, and then just kick them out and say, go ahead, on? You're not trying to send them back to where they came from. How do you make people right? How do you make an attempt to make them whole again? Reparations, the repairing of something that was harmed. So in terms of health claims for reparations. I talked about some of the psychological issues that African people have suffered as a result of not only enslavement, but everything that has happened after enslavement. You know, chattel slavery ended, and then we had what was known as the Black Codes. We had Jim Crow. We had uh, sharecropping. We had peonage, chain gangs, all of these laws that have now made regular minor crimes, major criminal undertakings because a black person has now done it. You know, standing around on the sidewalk loitering is, you know, no big thing unless it's black people loitering. And now it's a criminal conspiracy. And we have to be locked up for that because black people are up to no good. And then you lock us up and now we're made to work for no money. Well, wait a minute, didn't we just leave that behind working for no money? We're right back where we started from. So there's an entire system that has now been created and flipped to contain black people, to continue controlling and repressing, which continues to brutalize and traumatize black people. So, 
in terms of the health claims, there are psychological health claims that we can uh, use. There are actual physical health claims. Let me give you an example of a physical health claim. There's a brother by the name of Keith Baird who passed away a couple of years ago. He gave a presentation on reparations that blew my mind. He talked about the fact that on the transatlantic slave route, the Middle Passage to America, it was such a brutal undertaking with such horrific um, food conditions. You're not going to talk about the physical conditions, but just in terms of our nutrition and what they fed us. In order to survive that, our bodies had to uh, hold on to sodium, hold on to salt in our bodies. And so over the period of time, it became something that black people could automatically do. So we, and it's passed down through our, our genetic inheritance. So we're all automatically conserving and saving sodium, salt in our bodies. We're eating this these horrendous diets and what people call food deserts. Some people call it food apartheid. With the proliferation of McDonald's and fast food restaurants, the proliferation of processed food with extra salt in it, and what happens? Who has the highest result of hypertension in the country? It's black people, black men in particular, because of the overload of salt, of sodium. So that's one of the ways I talk about uh, a health claim. Um, psychologically, I talked about the fact that when you read Malcolm X's autobiography, he talks about how his mother was basically driven insane by the uh, welfare system in Omaha, Nebraska, after the murder of her husband. I liken that to um, around the time, uh, I think around the time that, was it 2002? Yeah, so not long, not long before 2002, I had seen the film adaptation of uh, Beloved. Uh, Oprah Winfrey had done the film adaptation of Beloved. I hadn't read the book at that point. So when I'm watching Beloved on the screen, I don't know what I'm looking at. I'm looking at a very brief, fleeting image of a man who's covering himself in a yellow substance. So I asked my friend, what was that? Well, in the book, the main character, Sethi, her husband watched her being attacked and raped. But he was chained up and could not do anything to help her. That experience drove him crazy on the plantation. So he would just spend the day taking butter out of a churn and covering himself in butter. If you go back to that, and I use that as a visual representation, right? You go back to the visual adaptation of Beloved, the character played by Danny Glover. So Paul D., his character, he's been walking all over the place trying to find his people who were sold off or lost or whatever during the time of enslavement. How many times have we, this is this is during the time of enslavement, but just right now today, how many times do you just see black people just walking aimlessly, just out there walking? Can you imagine you're quote unquote free now? You're in Kentucky. I'm going to get back to Georgia to find my people. You walk to Georgia. They're not there anymore. They were sold to Alabama. You walk over to Alabama. Oh, they're not here. And after a while, you're just walking around. You're just walking. Or you just sit down on the ground and give up. You are driven crazy by the conditions of your life that were created by white supremacy, capitalism, imperialism, that were created by enslavement. So those were some of the things I talked about, how we have claims for reparations. But make no mistake, there is no amount of money, there's no dollar amount we can come up with that will, excuse my language, make this shit right. 
This is just a quote-unquote good faith gesture. There is no amount of money that will make this shit right. Because any amount of money that they come up with is not only going to be too little, it cheapens the suffering of our ancestors. I most definitely understand Robbie G. Davis' um, response back after hearing, hearing you on that October back in 2002 at that breakfast meeting. Those are, those are some things that I've, I've heard in part, but not together under, under the category of, of reparations and, and why, why we must have them. I'm, I'm, sitting, I'm sitting here and I, I'm on a water pill <laughs> and I work out. And I have, have, you know, make good choices as far as my nutrition. And I'm on a low dosage of a water pill. I'm on 12.5 milligrams. If I don't take that water pill, Tandy, I will start to retain fluid in my toes, working my, its way to my ankles, working its way to my knees, and eventually working its way up to my, to, to my head where my entire body will, will start to just be bloated. And it doesn't matter how much work, workout I do or what have you, I'm probably going to have to be on this water pill always. And it's not something that many of us would ever correlate to our ancestors being in the Middle Passage, our ancestors waiting to be placed on a plantation and whoever, whatever the, the, the meal plan was to, to sustain us enough to be able to get up and work and to be able to get through whatever hours at night. But that, that most definitely is, is an effect on what I consider myself to be a healthy black woman who works out five times a week and who makes clear food choices. But yet I'm on this this water pill, and my doctor doesn't understand <laughs> why. When you when you talk with Black Women for Wellness and other organizations that deal with the health of Black women, they will tell you that Black American, or also known as New African women, Black women from the United States of America, born and raised here, descendants of Africans enslaved here, regardless, irregardless regardless of income and educational attainment, we consistently have low birth weight babies. Not sisters from Africa, not sisters from the Caribbean. We have low birth weight babies. What is going on with the health and the stress that black women are under in this country? It has something to do with it. White supremacy patriarchy, U.S. imperialism, all of those factors run together. They have historically all the way. There's a straight line from then to now. There's a straight line from us cons- conserving sodium on that, on the, at, the, at the bottom of that boat to our babies being low birth weight today. And other studies talk about the fact that so many black women are now dying in childbirth. It is all related. It is all related to the conditions, not just enslavement, what they did to us to get the work out of us and us not being paid for the work, but everything after that. 
Now you no longer own us. You no longer control us. So you come up with crazy laws. The cumulative effect of these crazy ass laws. Black people and white people can't be buried in the same fucking cemetery. You know, part of, because we get our history from Hollywood and we are not studying and talking to our elders, we come off a lot of times with an incorrect understanding. The fight against integration or the fight for integration against segregation is not to get next to white people. It's to get rid of these crazy ass laws that chip away at your mind. You must be black people and white people can't look out the same window. We can't look out the same window at work. Can't drink from the same fountain. All of these laws to keep us separate when we know as black women, white men have been trying to get at us and have been getting at us and raping us since they first set eyes on us. When we know white women and white men have been raping black men since they were first able to get us under their control, and yet you want to keep us separate, it works on the mind, on the psyche, on the soul. During enslavement, after enslavement. So yeah, there are health claims. There are all kinds of claims. But again, any dollar amount they come up with, is, is which is why I talk about in my book, you know, most corporations have a plan for liquidating themselves when they go out of business. Really, the only way to honestly, truly repair us, the United States needs to go out of business. The United States needs to liquidate its assets and then go out of business. You know how when you're just doing too much as a child and your mama just said, just sit down and be still. Don't move. The U.S. needs to not do nothing else because you're not going to do it right. So just be still. Don't move. Go out of business. And on that note, I'm your host, Angela Birdsong, and you are listening to Conversation Peace on RadioJustice.org with author, journalist, activist, Tandi Seesway Shimringa. Yes, hashtag words matter. Hashtag something gotta give. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. We'll be right back. What it is, RJLA family. This is Angela Birdsong, host of Conversation Piece, celebrating my first year anniversary with Radio Justice LA. Thank you for joining me every Tuesday for the Radio Justice Morning Wake Up Call at 8 a.m. and again at 12 p.m. Pacific Time on RadioJustice.org. All the women are white. All the blacks are men. But some of us are brave. Welcome back to Conversation Piece. I'm your host, Angela Birdsong, with author, journalist, activist, Tandi Seesway Shemriwanga. Tandi, when did you first know that you were an activist? Hmm. That's a good question. I think I was, it was after high school. It may have been, was it junior? It may have been junior college. I went to LACC out of high school. And uh, we needed a a black student union because there was none. So as part of an effort to get the black student union back on campus, which happened to coincide with, we had, um, I'm not sure of the overall number, but there were three in particular brothers from South Africa who were attending. And this is in the middle 1980s. 
So apartheid was still in effect. So we became involved in supporting local efforts at bringing awareness to apartheid. I remember in one instance in particular, the uh, mayor, I believe that was a Tom Bradley at that time, was possibly uh, giving the key of the city to a South African diplomat. And the South African consulate was on Wilshire Boulevard. We were part of a major demonstration at the consulate on Wilshire Boulevard, blocking the street. And that was when you were at, in college? Yeah, junior college. Yes. So the struggle against apartheid in South Africa was one of the, the move, probably the movement of my generation. A lot The generations prior to me had to deal with the liberation struggles of Africa and the coming out uh, of those struggles, late 60s, early 70s. For me, my consciousness was raised around apartheid in South Africa. So your first act um, activity for a movement for liberation was for the was the anti-apartheid movement. I think so. You know, the memory is getting kind of fuzzy, but I think so. Now, what was what was your first um, movement for women? Um, in terms of movement. Yeah, just you know, and, and of course I know the anti-apartheid movement. That that is that that's that's black women, black men, or, or, or you know. But I'm thinking. I'm not sure about movements. I know that as I got older, I had actually left Los Angeles and was living in Atlanta, and I got a job at a women's shelter. I want to say I don't remember being involved with a women's shelter prior to leaving Los Angeles. But I know that that definitely impacted my consciousness. And is that when your activism for violence against women began? Yes. I wouldn't, well, depending, you know, some people see activism, activism can be defined in different ways, but, you know, speaking out against something and writing are also methods of activism in addition to you know, protesting, walking the picket line, putting your body on the lines, uh, risking arrest. Those are other forms of activism. But I don't want to sound like I'm just, you know, been out there chaining myself to stuff, climbing poles and removing, you know, Confederate flags. I, my activism has not been that physical. But, you, yes, that that's where some of that activism came from. So what what are the different facets of your activism? Well, when I was uh, younger, I was a member of the Malcolm X grassroots movement. So there were protests that we engaged in here in Los Angeles prior to my going to uh, Atlanta. One of those was against the first Gulf War. We were protesting at military recruitment stations, a lot of which are predominantly in black communities. We even organized teachings not only on the war but on how to be a conscientious Objector. I guess it's all coming back to me now. But yeah, we were outside physically protesting, holding demonstrations, trying to stop people from going into these military recruitment centers here in Los Angeles. And in your book, in your book, and of course in the book that I'm, I'm speaking of, is no doubt the murders of Oscar Grant. And in your book, you you talk about black women not being regarded as victims and not protected as the so-called weaker sex. And also, 
being a woman does not save you from the wrath of LAPD. At what point in your activism for or, or against violence against women moved from domestic violence within the house, within the community, to police brutality? Well, it's all the same. It's all the same. Domestic violence is nothing more than, that's why it's called domestic. It's, it's inside, it's in the house. Everything else is outside violence or societal violence. It's all comes from the same root in terms of women, and that's the devaluing of women because of patriarchy. So it's all the same. Even under patriarchy, black women victims are not seen as being, um, it, it's not seen as uh, something crucial to organize around when women are killed by the police versus the way men are treated, male victims, which has to do with patriarchy. Now, not necessarily patriarchy in the black community, but patriarchy in general. What I mean by that is because patriarchy establishes rigid gender roles for men and for women. So under traditional patriarchy, white Eurocentric patriarchy, men are the breadwinners. They go outside the home. Women are docile. They are humble, they are meek, they stay inside of the house. So when it comes to over-policing in the black community, black people have been surveilled and are surveilled at a ridiculous rate. But black men under a patriarchal system are going to have eyes on them more often than black women are, right? Black women rarely get the police called on them for just walking through a neighborhood. You know, you, you remember all these calls we get, doing a, a suspicious call, what's he doing? He's walking through the neighborhood. So black men are always going to be looked at as being suspicious. So when something happens, you know, in a patriarchal society, it is the male of the group who is the, for lack of a better word, the big dog, right? So your threat is going to come from another male. So if you're a white supremacist or racist society, you're oppressing people of color, you're going to be zeroing in on the males of color. That's who is going to be seen to you as being your greatest threat. So eyes are constantly on black men. And when black men are murdered by police, it's in, a, it's in an over-above-board fashion. It's also very, very public because there are eyes on black men. So this is why we can even have the videotapes of so many murders of black men. Because why? They're in the public and there are eyes on them. We don't have videotape of Riddell Jones. We don't have videotape of Sandra Bland. We don't have the videos of sisters being murdered by police. But we know they exist. We know, the, we know of the existence of the videotape of the murder of Natasha McKenna. We heard about her getting killed five months later. And then five months after that... We see the videotape of her naked being accosted by men in uniforms and hazmat. With black men, their murders are pretty much instantaneous because somebody's always watching them. Either watching them to observe as a witness to what's about to happen or the enemy themselves, right? So because it's instantaneous, because it's so brutal, we want to do something about it now. We have to do something about it now. But when black women are killed... It's, it's hush-hush. There are questions. You know, if it hadn't been for 
the arms that she had, Corinne Gaines, well, you see what happened with Corinne Gaines. They stopped the the witnessing of what happened with Corinne Gaines. The police worked in conjunction with Facebook and said, stop the feed. We don't want anyone to see this. So, and if that, that kind of mirrors our existence anyway, when it comes to black women, what happens, the brutalization that happens to us is usually away from prying eyes anyway. There's a book called At the Dark End of the Street, which talks about uh, Reese Taylor and Rosa Parks' work against rape. You know, these things don't happen in broad daylight. They don't happen under street lights. They happen at the dark end of the street. They happen in alleys where can't nobody see. They happen in the corner of uh, Sandra Bland's uh, cell is in a corner of the jail where ain't no cameras. So it's away from prying eyes. We don't get to see what happens. So we don't see it as being as uh, as um, not only as important, but as crucial. We got to do something about this now. And so what other people have been saying, what I've been saying is it's just as crucial because the war is against all of us. It's not a war against black men. It's a war against black people. And we are all being murdered. As, as a longtime activist for black women's rights and self-determination, what were your early personal and political influences? Of course, uh, Angela Davis, Asada Shakur, uh, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer. I know one of the turning points for me came when I read Mad at Miles. Because for me, revolutionary black nationalism or nationalism is something that kind of comes first to black people, kind of comes naturally to black people, unless you're raised in a household where your parents are of a different political persuasion. If you're just raising regular old black folk household, you pretty much going to be a nationalist whether you know it or not. How, it be, how, how that nationalism ends up showing up is, is, is another story, but we can call it crude or basic or fundamental nationalism. And so under crude or fundamental nationalism, you know, we're taught to put the nation first. And anything that takes away from this fight against white supremacy in the nation is a distraction. So we can't talk about men versus women what's happening between men and women because that takes away, right? And then I read Mad at Miles and I'm reading Pearl Cleage's words and she's obviously a black nationalist woman, obviously got love for black people, but she's critiquing the behavior of black men and how they're killing us. And I didn't think that was possible to sound and be like a nationalist while you're still critiquing brothers. I was like, wait a minute. It like it opened up a whole nother world for me. So that can tell you, that ought to tell you right there the types of people I had been around prior to that. But, you know, just in order to give due respect where it's due, that book was assigned to me for reading when I was a part of the New African People's Organization. So just giving honor and respect where it's due. But that was a turning point for me. I was like, oh. And that's how I began, how I began to study feminism on my own. How I began to understand that a lot of times black men are against feminism because it calls them on their shit. Black men and lots of people, it ain't just black men, but we're talking about black men, right? Are not used to being held accountable, being called to account for their behavior. And nine times out of ten, when you attempt to do that, the comeback is always, well, what about black women? Black women do it too. They never bring it up on its own. It's always brought up in a response to an attempt to ask black men to be accountable. And so, for me, taking my cue from 
people like Asada Shakur, Nahanda Abiodun, Queen Mother Moore, um, a sister who's alive and well right now in Atlanta, Georgia, by the name of Aminata Umoja. You know, it don't matter what you call me. I'm fighting for my freedom as a woman, and I'm fighting my, for my freedom as a black person in this country. You can call me what you want. You know, I know that when you call me feminist, in your mind, you're saying traitor. But because you're an idiot and don't know what the fuck you're talking about, I don't really have a problem with you calling me a feminist. I know who I am. I know whose I am. And I know what my record says. So I'm good. Amen to that. <laughs> um, I actually read um, someone's article. I can't remember who it was. It could have been Sakivu Hutchison who interviewed you. Or it may have been J.R. Valerie. I, I did a lot of reading uh, about. Dug up. Yeah, you dug in the crates. I, I went. I went deep into the stacks, as as we used to say that when you used to go into the library <laughs> and and go into the bibliography and right. look up those books back there. Uh, you opened my eyes in the connection between feminism and nationalism just in this brief research that, that I've done. Because you, you, if you're a feminist, then you have to acknowledge the black family mm-hmm. because we give birth to the family. Of course. There's no such thing as women's issues for the black community. We are more than 50% of the population and when we take care of people, we take care of everybody. Big mama, papa, auntie, uh, uncle, so-and-so's kid, baby's kids. So if it's involving women, it's involving all of us. There is no separate. It's not women's issues. It's the community's issues. It's the nation's issues. You're listening to Conversation Peace on Radio Justice Morning Wake Up Call. I'm your host, Angela Birdsong. And since we, in the previous segment, we were talking about domestic violence, I just want to make sure that everybody knows that if you're in danger of a domestic violence matter, please call 911 or reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 800-799-7233. For more resources for crisis support, helplines, and warm lines, Go to NamiUrbanLA.org. N-A-M-I, UrbanLA.org. That's NamiUrbanLA.org. I'm here with author, journalist, activist, Tante Sizwe Shimranga. The White Supremacist Playbook that you speak of so clearly and define in a way that I believe Everyone should read your book, No Doubt, The Murders of Oscar Grant, to just understand what white supremacy is. We, we get so mixed up in, in our heads as black people, as people of other races, of what white supremacy is, but it's something that is so larger than you and I than the individuals, than, than the KKK and those who believe that they support white supremacy, that we don't even understand the concept of it. And when I read, particularly chapter five of, of your book, when you just broke down from, from, the, from the very beginning of Oscar Grant's case because you talk about the murders. Of course, we know the first murder in your book is the physical murder mm-hmm. of him. And the following murders are him through the media 
and in the courtroom, which begins with the police officers believing they have the right to treat an unarmed man the way that they they did because of his color, beginning with them coming up on the platform. You said that the subsequent murders in the court by police statements, the dehumanization of the victim, the victim is made to be seen as an aggressor. It's never the perpetrator's fault. Everybody's fault except for the perpetrator. How do the police criminalize people after they murder them in regards to the white supremacist playbook? Yeah, the the playbook, if you notice... Whenever someone is murdered by the police, the media is a willing and all too willing assistant in this and that the police will give a statement and the media runs with it without being critical. They don't ask questions of the police. They don't insert their own questions into the coverage. So a young black man is murdered. Uh, He had something. He was he, he was suspected of committing a crime or he was suspected of having a weapon. Or, in the case, for example, of Botham Jean in Texas uh, a while back, who was killed in his own apartment, he's in his own apartment and is murdered by a cop. The police decide to search his apartment, which made absolutely no sense. But then what do they say once they search his apartment? They found marijuana. So, you know, this person had uh, was in some way in violation of the law. In other words, this black person did something to cause, number one, the police to be looking at them, and then, number two, to take their life. I.e., number three, the police are not at fault here. The black person is at fault for their own death. So that is a standard part of the playbook. And again, the media in this country works hand-in-hand with the police. Now, here in Los Angeles, I'm assuming... It's similar in other cities, I don't know. There are, from time to time, press conferences that the police will give, especially after a murder, depending upon the tension that's going on in the community. Here's some tips for budding journalists, or even some um, veteran journalists. When you go to a press conference that's been called because of a controversial police killing, and the police make a statement such as, well, the, uh, the deceased or the suspect was a gang, gang member. Raise your hand and say, at what point did you ascertain they were a gang member? Was it before you shot them 40 times in the back? Was it 30 seconds before? Or did it come a week later? Because how does that have any bearing on the fact that your officers shot this person in the back and they were unarmed? The next question, they'll say, well, a gun was found at the scene. Was the gun found? Raise your hand. Be polite. Was the gun found on the person? Or did your uh, officers bring it later on, right? Or a cor- and a corollary to that, well, the suspect's DNA was found on the gun. Well, now, that's an interesting one. Were there fingerprints found on the gun? The fingerprints that were on the gun, did they come from the person you killed uh, in the back saying they had a gun? Well, it was just the DNA. Well, now, let's look at this DNA. Was the DNA on the trigger? Or did it come from the grip? Or did it come from the uh, muzzle where your officers beat the suspect and then planted the gun on them? There's ways you can do this, but the media never does it. They assume that the police are telling the truth. The public assumes the police are telling the truth, and the police know this. The police 
are confident and, and smug in telling the public what they want them to know. And the media, which bills itself as being a watchdog, never challenges their narrative. That is an essential part of the playbook. Which leads toward the other part of the playbook. I'm not sure what number we're on. Are we on five, six? I'm not sure. <laughs> the culprit, the perpetrator, never ever takes responsibility. You know, we've had situations where... Was it the man in... Um, let's see. Brother in... One of the, one of the people... Well, okay, different people. Cop in South Carolina shot the brothers. He was running away. My life has been ruined. My This is the worst day of my life. You took a man's life. You ain't got no issue with that? I remember during the trial of uh, Ted Wafer in Detroit for the murder of Renisha McBride. I think he said, why me? Why you what? Why you shot a sister in the face with a pistol grip pump shotgun? I didn't ask for that. No, nobody has to get shot. In the face with a pistol grip pump shotgun. They never ever accept responsibility. Or say anything that can come back to them as being responsible. It's always the person, the black man or woman or child's fault who is murdered. Matter of fact, that reminds me. Tamir Rice, the 12 year old child in Cleveland, Ohio. Who they wanted to try and say was not a child. He was bigger. But still, he's a child. It's not a lot that you can pin on a 12-year-old child who's murdered by the police. Other than the standard, well, what was he doing out there playing with a toy gun? Well, he's a child. In Cleveland, I believe it was cleveland.com, the website of the main newspaper there, they come out with an article on the history of Tamir Rice's mother and father. Criminal and domestic violence history. So you can't pin anything on the child you're going to go talk about his mom and daddy to try and see what kind of upbringing he had. I can understand if he went and robbed a bank, he's playing in a park with a toy gun. So any attempt whatsoever to take responsibility away from the people with power, the state and its armed agents, and to throw it back on the victim or the victim's family, the media is all too willing to aid the police in that. And that is sickening, that is disgusting, that is pathetic, and that needs to be attacked just like police terrorism needs to be attacked. Yeah, the media, that, that's actually number 11 in, in your playbook. You have, you have 12 categories in, in the playbook of white supremacy um, in regards to... The murders of black people. Of, and the murders of, of black people. The jurors. Jurors come in with implicit bias. Implicitly biased against black people and implicitly biased for the cops. The scary thing that I found out is that much of the jury pool pulls from a lot of the same people over and over and over again. In the process of voir dire, when they're questioning jurors, a lot of times, the prosecutor in particular wants to know, has someone ever served on a jury before and were they able to reach a decision? And I'm like, wow, that's all you care about. Not a first-time person, not someone who might have some expertise in the area. They just want to know, can y'all come up with a decision? And it's the same people. So, you know, so many of us try to get out of uh, juror duty. The ones who end up sticking with it, they get called more than once. 
and their biases have never been interrogated or or, or dealt with. That, that's that's frightening. That's that's scary. And and you, know, you just use that per, that phrase voir dire um, for for those of you guys who are listening. V o i r second word d i r e. What what is that? Voir dire is when is the process of when you're selecting jurors. The prosecutor and the defense attorney go through questions to see uh, if to find basically jurors they like, who they want on the jury, who they think will be sympathetic to either the client or to the prosecution. They get a they get a thing called uh, what's it called? I, you got the book where they get peremptory strikes. I think they're called peremptory. We call them preemptory preemptive strikes, where they can just dismiss a juror without even asking them a question. They might not like the way you looked that morning. You're excused, ma'am. You don't have to be on this jury. So they get a, depending upon what city you're in, I think L.A., it's 11. The defense gets 11. The uh, prosecutor gets 11. So that's 22 people who have already been stricken from the jury for no cause whatsoever. And then you start asking them questions. Uh, Have you ever been a victim of a violent crime before? Do you have a family member who's a police officer? All of these different kind of questions to try to get an idea of who you are and how you might swing your vote. And for the Oscar Grant trial here that that came down here to Los Angeles. They had no black people whatsoever on the jury. No black people whatsoever in Los Angeles County. As part of the jury process, one woman was a sister of an L.A. County sheriff. She was peremptorily struck. They didn't ask her nothing. Goodbye. Another one, his wife worked for LAPD, struck. This black guy. So even the black folks that had law enforcement ties, in this particular case, they were struck. Because this particular, the Oscar Grant case, was, um, it was heavily racially charged. And the, the attorney knew that and got rid of every black person he could. He wanted the he wanted the trial moved from Alameda County because he said, number one, uh, too many people in this county know about the case and think my client is guilty. But also, uh, I'm, I would have to individually interview each, not all, each prospective black juror, and that might cause a riot. So let's just take it out of Alameda County. That's what he said. When I when I when I read your book, I was just crying. I had to take breaks to pray. I had to take breaks to just get angry. I don't know. I don't think anyone besides you as a reporter and other and your colleagues have sat and you know, of course, people who do court work. But the average American, we have no idea what happens in our court system, let alone a court system that is set against black people. When you describe the judges, tell us about the judges and this white supremacy playbook. Well, I mean, you know, this particular judge, (laughs) I, I... Sometimes you look and you think this couldn't be scripted better in a Hollywood movie. This judge on this case was also a judge in the Rampart scandal uh, in Los Angeles in the late 90s, which had to do with rogue cops 
keeping um, uh, stealing cocaine and planting evidence on suspects, blah, 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 blah. One of the cops decided to turn. I don't know if it was because he, well, we know it wasn't because of change of heart. They must have offered him something. And so this officer, uh, this judge, Robert Perry, who was over Oscar Grant's murderer's trial, is the judge who granted the cop who testified, allowed him to serve his sentence outside of the state of California. Because he said, we want to make sure that other cops have an incentive to come forward. We don't want these witnesses to be mistreated. uh, And so we don't want anything to happen to him while he's here in California. So his attorneys made a request that he finish his sentence elsewhere, and the judge granted it. The scuttle that I heard, I, I didn't talk to anyone in particular. I didn't talk to the people involved, but what I heard was that this judge berated the prosecutor uh, in terms of this case even being brought. Um, in his parting words, at the end of the trial, he mirrored the words of the defense attorney that Oscar Grant was attempting to, was resisting arrest, and that's why, basically, that gave Johannes Mersley no choice but to shoot him. And I, I, I was shocked. My mouth was open when he said that. I couldn't believe that he, that he said that. I have, I have a part of, of your book, and I, I would love for you to read this. <clears throat> Page 191. We must begin to care for one another as members of a group with a similar ancestry, history, and destiny. As part of this, we should proactively study and utilize nonviolent restorative justice principles for the internal conflicts and antagonisms that exist in our homes, on our blocks, in our communities, in every city we reside in. This can also slow the tide of black-on-black violence, a phenomenon that has its roots in white supremacist violence against black people, but a phenomenon that is also used as a a red herring against black people when we rightfully condemn state-sanctioned white supremacist murder. This consciousness and this sense of community that must be nurtured amongst us must in turn be supplemented by concrete solidarity by our allies. That means all those justice-loving people who understand that white supremacy, while focusing on African-descended people specifically, is detrimental to all communities, all countries, and the planet that we all inhabit. This is a minimum of what is needed in order to reach a critical mass of people who are committed to ending the state-sanctioned murder of black people. I have already seen a glimpse of this consciousness, this sense of community, and this solidarity. I saw it as a small piece of beauty in the ugly murder of Oscar Grant by Johannes Mersley and Tony Peroni. That beauty was a vast ocean of allies, a people, people of varying identities, ethnicities, cultures, genders, sexualities, who were as horrified and angered over the murder of Oscar Grant as black people were. People who were just as insulted by Mersley's taser lie as black people were, and people who took to the streets with us to demand that Mersley be held accountable for his crime. This ocean was simply beautiful. Thank you, Tandi Cesar Shamaringa, for your work as an activist, journalist, providing the investigative truths responsibly and for sharing your journey. Thank you for the serious business of exposing and showing us the state of white supremacy, its justice system, its police, its government, its media, requiring all to open our eyes, ears, and heart to some type of practical, concrete action. 
Thank you, Leslie Raffer, the visionary of RJLA, Adam Rice, program director, Joseph Tucker, engineer, Michael Washington of M Watch So for the opening and closing theme song, and always you, our RJLA family. Remember to be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be brave, be courageous, and let all that you do be done with love. <laughs>